Do take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. It's always irritating, isn't it, when you're watching a series on television and somebody drops in who's not watching the same series as you are, and while the story's unfolding, they keep asking you, so which is the bad guy, which is the good guy, and what's going on here? So just in case you're visiting and you interrupt the sermon this morning, I'm going to start by telling you who the goodies and the baddies are in the story that we're going to look at today. Okay, so keep these in your mind. I was downstairs during the first service talking to the children, and they've got this firmly etched in their minds. They know who the characters are in the drama. These are the baddies. Absalom and Ahithophel. Nicely, they start with the same letter. You should not forget who they are. Absalom and Ahithophel. Absalom is the son of King David, and he is uh, full of himself, as we'll see, but he's also started a rebellion, and he has ousted King David from his throne, and David is on the run, Absalom is on the throne, and he is ably assisted by David's old secretary of state, Ahithophel, who has now moved over to Absalom's side. They're the baddies. The goodies are King David, which may surprise you that I'm calling him a goodie because we've seen that David's career kind of has its ups and downs, and we've been looking recently at the downs. David is sometimes good and he's sometimes bad, but overall he's a goodie because David is a bit like you, actually, uh, and a bit like me. More like you than me, of course. (laughs) Down uh, and up, and a a kind of marked character, a character with all kinds of flaws in it, obviously. And... uh, David has a friend called Hushai. He's the guy. We could call him Hush if we wanted for short. Hushai the Archite. I have absolutely no idea of what Archite is, but, but anyway, he's called Hushai the Archite. I didn't think that was relevant for you to learn this morning. So these are the goodies, and those are the baddies. And of course, it's worse than just goodies and baddies because it's all about the story, it's all about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is God rules, okay? So how do you see the kingdom of God? The Bible says the kingdom of God is everywhere. But 3,000 years ago, if you were to ask the question, where do we see the kingdom of God at work in the world? Then you would have pointed at the nation Israel, and you would have said, there's the kingdom of God at work in those people. They are the people of God. And you would have pointed to King David because you would say to people, King David is the Lord's anointed king. He is the Lord's Messiah king. That's what the word means, Messiah king. Or to use the Greek form, he is the Lord's Christ. You would point to Israel. Today, if someone says, where is the kingdom of God? You would say, well, the kingdom of God is everywhere. God is ruling everywhere. But if you want to see it visible, then you look at the church. In the church, David's greater son, King Jesus, is the king and head of the church. And there in the church, you see the people of God. You see the Israel of God at work in the world today. So when we come to this story, what you need to know right at the get-go is that the shenanigans of Absalom and Ahithophel and company are part of a concerted effort that begins in the imagination of the head of hell in order to subvert the kingdom of God 
and remove God's Messiah, God's Christ, God's King from his throne in Jerusalem. And the efforts of hell to frustrate the church of God and to topple God's King have been a feature throughout the last 3,000 years and around the world today. And when we read about this and we think about this, we think how fragile and fragmented and failing a thing the church of God has been in all of these years. So fragile, so fragmented, so failing, it seems so vulnerable and small in the eyes of the world. And sometimes Christian people are tempted to despair, to throw up their hands in horror and to wonder about the fortunes of Zion the church of God, they seem so low. To wonder about the cause of God that seems so compromised and to think, why is this? How can it be that this should be in the world? And it raises a question about the state of the kingdom in the world. And we have a big lesson to learn from Absalom and Ahithophel because Ahithophel is a kind of false prophet. He, he occupies the role of a false prophet to Absalom's Antichrist. He is anti-Christ. He is anti the Lord's anointed. He is an early type of the Antichrist. So I want to look at this this morning and I have three points so you know where we're going and you know where the end is near. I want you to think about the counsel of the wicked, the confusion of the wicked, and the confounding of the wicked. First of all, we have the counsel of the wicked. Look at chapter 16 and verse 15. Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, come to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. If you were Absalom, you would think at this point you'd won the battle. Here he is just a few days before. He has announced himself, a very strategic way, he has announced himself to be the king over Israel. And David and his small retinue of followers have had to leave the city at full speed get as far away from Jerusalem as they possibly can, and now Absalom finally has arrived with his people. He's not only arrived there, but he has in tow this man, Ahithophel, who was David's secretary of state. He is a very significant man. If you look at verse 23, you'll see why. Because the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So the counsel of Ahithophel was esteemed both by David and by Absalom. I'm warning you, by the way, Ahithophel is hard to say when I get talking fast. So I may stumble once or twice in the process. So here we find a man who is a power to be reckoned with. He is a forceful figure. He is a well-seasoned veteran of international affairs. He is a great statesman as well as a great traitor. And he is on Absalom's side. And if you were Absalom, you would think to yourself that you had it made, that everything was great. You had the capital city. You had the secretary of state. You'd been proclaimed as king throughout Israel. And the former incumbent who is your dad is on the run with just a small bunch of men. And it would seem as if victory was secure. So Absalom consults his secretary of states. What, what do you think we should do? 
I'm going to skip a little bit and go straight to the first thing that Ahithophel counsels Absalom to do there in verse 20. I won't forget what we've jumped over. We'll come back to that in a moment. Give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel says to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel would hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. That seems a bizarre thing. You're wondering, what on earth is he going to say about that this morning? Don't you just wish he would jump over that passage and continue on to chapter 17? Well, of course I won't. Because what you need to understand, of course, is that in the ancient world, concubines were more than just you adding to your harem uh, any woman you happen to see. Concubines had a political significance. Concubines were a symbol of power and were one of the accoutrements of office. A king was as virile and as well accepted by the number of concubines that he had. And in fact, not only that, but there was a kind of perception that the king in his office was married to the nation. And the women of his harem represented the nation, as it were, in the royal palace. And just as he was married to the bride Israel, his brides represent the nation. So when one king died, it was the common thing that the next king would take into his royal palace the concubines of the previous king. Now, it was just a paper transaction. They just stayed where they were. They lived on. I mean, they had nowhere else to go. They had no security. They had no job security. The king was dead. So the successor would keep them on and care for them, and they would live there and they, on a pension, and they'd be fairly secure into the future. It was very, very, very rare, almost impossible, for the kind of thing to happen that Ahithophel was recommending here. But Ahithophel was a skilled statesman. He wanted to make sure that the battle between Absalom and David was completely won by Absalom. And so he says, the thing you have to do is, you have to, in a sense, disgrace David publicly in the eyes of Israel. You have to demonstrate your power. Not only that you have these concubines shacked up there in the royal palace, but that in fact you have used them yourself and in that way you will be a stench to David. That will mean that people will no longer be able to sit on the fence. The people who are waiting to see what's going to happen will see that there is now no possibility of a reconciliation between father and son. The matter, it will be resolved. People will have to choose and you will be seen to be in the place of control. That's what he does. They pitch a little tent on the roof deck of the royal palace. Everybody can see these concubines as they're led in and then as they're taken out. You don't have to use much imagination to know what's going on here. And the shock effect, the shock effect is powerful upon Israel. I suppose today, whenever there's a coup d'etat in some uh, foreign place, the, real, the way you, you demonstrate the power of the, the new person who's in charge is you take over the radio station or the television station and you show by having the, the media at your fingertips, you show the, the power that you have and the fact that you are victorious. 
Well, Absalom's defiance and his blatant act of power and his deliberate provocation were all done freely. They were all done freely. They were done as the actions of political strategy. But they were more than that. Those of us who have been reading the story know this. We know the background. The background is back in chapter 12, verse 11. I'll read it for you so that you keep your attention here. Okay, I'll read it to you. Behold, I will raise up... This is God through Nathan talking to King David. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your own eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. In other words, here is Absalom and Ahithophel. They're making a deliberate, determined decision to do what they will do, what Absalom will do. And as far as they are concerned, it is an act of raw power. But from God's perspective, it is the fulfillment of his word. It was an act of judgment on Israel and on David. An act of judgment on the church of his day. God is using these the counsel of the wicked and the action of the wicked to judge his own servant, David, and to demonstrate that his word is true. Amen. And I want to say this about God's church today. God uses the powers of this age. He uses the persecuting forces of this age. He uses those who write up their reports in the, in the radio, in the New York Times and other places, uh, slating the church of Jesus Christ and undermining the cause of God. He uses them to discipline and chastise his own people, his church, for their doctrinal laxity, for their moral failure. He, he, he disciplines his people whenever his people relax their grip on the word of God. God uses the counsel of the wicked, but he uses it for his own ends. But then secondly, in the story, there's the confusion of the wicked. Because David had prayed a little prayer. David had prayed a prayer when he'd heard that Ahithophel had gone rogue and betrayed him and was now a member of uh, uh, Absalom's cabinet, David had just shot a little quick prayer to God. And his prayer said, let Ahithophel's advice be frustrated. And we wonder, will God answer that prayer? Especially since Absalom has, has done what Ahithophel told him right here. Well, enter into the scene this other man, Hushai. I told you he was a friend of David. Absalom knew that, that he was a friend of David. Let's just walk our way down that little bit of the story there. You'll find it from verse 15, 16. Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom. Now, I want you to notice he's a bit of a theatrical guy, this Hushai. Hushai is a theatrical guy. It's almost poetic. There you go. And he comes to King David, and you notice he starts saying the stuff. Long live the king. Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this the kind of loyalty that you show to a friend? I thought King David was your friend. Is this the kind of loyalty that you show to your friend? And Hushai says to Absalom, look at verse 18, no. For whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him I will remain. And again he said, 
Whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now I want you to notice what's going on here. Hushai is not, he's not being, he's not betraying David here. You see, every part of this, let me just go over this a little moment. And let me tell you what's going on in the story. Hushai is saying, Lord, long live the king. And he's thinking, David. Absalom hears, long live the king. And he thinks, Absalom. Hushai says, hmm, I, uh, I am loyal to, I'm loyal to the, the one that the Lord and his people and the men of Israel have chosen. And Hushai is thinking, David is the Lord's anointed. David was the people's choice. David is the one that I'm loyal to. Absalom? Absalom is thinking, it's me. It's me. The Lord's chosen me. And then he says, as I have served your father, so I will serve you. Hushai is thinking, I have served your father with absolute loyalty and faithfulness over these years. And I'm going to serve you in loyalty and faithfulness to your dad. And Absalom's listening to this and he's thinking, he's talking about me. You see, what Hushai does, a very brilliant guy, what this man Hushai does is he is able to identify the flaw in the character of this man, Absalom. For those of you who have not been following the story, the Bible has only told us one significant thing. You'd be, you'd be really disappointed if you're regular and we not mention this one significant thing about Absalom. And the one significant thing it has to say about Absalom has to do with the hair. Yes, the hair. I mean, this guy is full of himself. This is a guy who's got one eye in the mirror. You know, this, 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 you know that song? You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you, don't you? That one. Remember that song? Those really old people here who remember Carly Simon and that song. This song was made for Absalom. Absalom thinks about himself. He is the center of the world. He's been driving through the place in the chariot, hair flying. And Absalom, Absalom takes it to himself. He loves himself, this man. And Hushai knows it. And he puts his finger. He goes for the jugular, as it were. He knows that this man will, uh, will respond to anything that seems to flatter him. And so he does. And it's at this point in the story that, that Absalom comes with his other plan. Well, not, uh, they, no, Ahithophel comes with his other plan to Absalom. And Ahithophel's other plan is that Absalom should strike David while the iron is hot. David is just gone. He's just gone a long day's march. He'll be weary. He's just left his capital city and left his family behind. He'll be discouraged. He's gone with about 600 men. So Ahithophel says to Absalom, you know, what we need to do is, we need to make this a pan-Israel effort. Ask for a thousand men from every tribe, from every tribe, 12,000 men, and we will strike tonight. I will lead them. Ahithophel says, I will lead them tonight. We'll go after David. We'll hit him while he's down, while he's vulnerable, while he's tired, while he's discouraged. If we get him now, and if we make our goal, our campaign goal, simply to aim to kill David, we won't, get, we won't be diverted chasing up other, other sides, other forces. We will go to get David. If we get David, that will be the end of it all, and you will be the king. 
I want to tell you that Hithophel's advice was good advice. Militarily, it was good advice. Go after him immediately. Get him right now. And it's at this point that Absalom does almost the unthinkable. He says to to Hushai, I, I know that Hithophel, his counsel is like the word of God. We just kind of treat it as if it's the word of God. Whatever he says is always right. Because, in fact, that's what the text says. It says that his word was like the word of God, that his word was right. But uh, Absalom says, I'd like to hear what you have to say, Hushai. And it's here that Hushai gives his scenario. Hithophel's advice is in 40 Hebrew words. Hushai's advice is three times as long because he kind of... He kind of expands it, you know, he gives a great big song and makes a song and dance about it. He says, well, he said, Absalom, you know better than anyone else that your dad, your father is a mighty military commander. You know that he is the sharpest, he's the sharpest tool in the box when it comes to, to being uh, a strategist militarily. You know that he is a vile, valiant fighter. You know that those men with him have nothing to lose. If they will fight hard. And as soon as the reports come back that some of your men have fallen, which they will, in the very first encounter, people will panic. They'll think, the old David is back. And they'll think, you don't have a chance. And, and it will, they will just, they'll just run away. Your army will melt before your eyes. That was his advice. So he says this. What I want you to do instead of, don't listen to Hithophel. I mean, I know that everybody thinks he's absolutely wonderful and his word is always right and his word is like the word of God. But don't listen to him. This time he's wrong. This time he's wrong. What I want you to do is amass a huge army. Get all the tribes to give you loads of people. Get a massive army. And he's appealing to the pride of Absalom. Absalom, instead of letting Ahithophel do it, I know he's only trying to keep you out of harm's way, but just imagine, imagine yourself Absalom, on your chariot, in front of this massive army, bearing down on David. He knew what he was doing. He was pressing the right buttons. Old Absalom, he's seeing in his head. You know, he, he was used to going around the streets of Jerusalem in his chariot, hair waving, and the young men decided. He just saw himself there at the head of this massive army, going into battle. The fan blowing in front of him with his hair waving behind him as he goes after the enemy. Hushai had got him. He got him because we're told that he didn't listen to the counsel of Ahithophel. Listen to what it says in verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, we look at this and we think, how can this be? How could Absalom, how could he ignore what is so blindingly obvious? The better advice of Ahithophel. And take this long convoluted story of Hushai and take it seriously. And verse 14 tells us why. Verse 14 says this, The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Get this. Every character in this story is doing what they want to do. Nobody is being coerced. 
Nobody is being manipulated. No one is a puppet, puppet on a string. Everybody is doing what they want to do. But the reality is that hidden behind all of their decision making is the reality that God is doing what He wants to do. What He wants to do. That prayer of David's, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, is being answered. As Absalom refuses the counsel of Ahithophel, listens to Hushai and makes this decision on his own. I tell you this, from the very get-go, Absalom doesn't stand a chance. And the counsel of Ahithophel doesn't stand a chance. Why? Because these men have ganged up together against the Lord's Christ, against the Lord's anointed. David writes about this in the second psalm. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord says, I have established my king on Zion. These verses mark the theological center of the story. These verses challenge our view of history and our view of our own history. We have a number of options when we look at history. We can either look at it the way the world does and see history as a story of men and nations, of human reason and human factors, of things being turned around by human wisdom or human folly, that everything being done in terms of human power and human weakness. Or on the other hand, there are the over-spiritual people. They see everything happening as a direct intervention of God. Everything's a miracle. Everything's a miracle. So much is a miracle, really, that the very word miracle is evacuated of any significant meaning at all. Everything that happens is a miracle. They expect daily interruptions of the supernatural, miraculous outbursts of divine energy. Well, both of those are wrong, aren't they? What these stories are in the Bible to teach you and me is this. That the truth of God is actually far more prosaic. That God works out his sovereign purposes through ordinary and normal means. That God's throne stands, that, that his purpose is established, that his power is hidden, that his hand is invisible to everything except the eye of faith. That as we look at our lives, all we see are school runs and soccer practice and final exams and grocery stores and general elections and house prices and office politics and church fights. That's all we see. That's all we see. A couple of people having coffee, making a decision there that is going to have ramifications for the kingdom of God. They don't see it. But behind it all, Yahweh rules, Jehovah rules, the Lord rules and reigns over all. Our confession is right when it says that God the creator of all things doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least. That he does it not just directly, but he does it 
sometimes by second causes in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God the first cause all things come to pass immutably and infallibly yet by the same providence he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes that is decisions made in somebody's boardroom or in some office in the capitol building that's where the decisions are made in the ordinary flow of people's lives but God rules the world in his providence by the nature of second causes that's why in the Bible there's so much narrative the Bible gives us this narrative so that we can see what it looks like to the characters in this story as we'll see in a moment they have no idea what is going on behind the scenes he is never God is never absent but he is not always obvious he is never absent but he is not always obvious thrice blessed is he to whom it's given the instinct that can tell that God is on the field when he is most invisible let's rush to the last point the confounding of the wicked you and I in verse 14 have just been let in on a secret the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel but Hushai David's spy doesn't know that he, he doesn't know the decision that Absalom has made he, he doesn't know that Absalom has decided not to listen to the secretary of state but to listen to him I, I know that because that's what we find from verse 15 onwards of chapter 17 Hushai gets together Zadok and Abiathar the priests they were planted by David as well by the way and he says to them we really need to get we really need to get some word back to David we need to tell David what Ahithophel has counseled the king so they get they get there there's a girl who's on board she's a spy too it's a great story kids loved it this morning downstairs she's a spy they get her in they say now you've got to go and there's two guys that are hiding they're hiding in the city go to them and tell them what Ahithophel said and what Hushai said and say we, we think Absalom will go with what Ahithophel said this could get very 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 difficult to translate this message wouldn't it be you you, you get tongue-tied tell tell David what Hushai and Ahithophel said and warned David that Absalom is more likely to listen to his sector of state than he is to me to get out of there to get Absalom, you know get get as far away from there as possible so the girl gets out she goes in disguise she puts her hood up down through the streets of Jerusalem she comes across these two guys that she's supposed to meet up she tells them the message what she doesn't notice is that across the road in a chariot blacked out windows is somebody watching these two guys and he sends a message to Absalom that these two spies are in the city he saw them so Absalom sends out the troops they scour I'm just telling you what's in the rest of this chapter they scour the city they look everywhere for these for these fellas meanwhile the guys have got to hide they've got to escape they go around it they go into somebody's backyard and there's a well in the backyard so they climb down into the well and they kind of suspend themselves I get the picture I have is of them with their feet on one end and their hands up here and they're kind of suspending themselves over the water in the well it's a very uncomfortable picture you kind of hope that somehow or other they'll get out of there quick 
The tension is mounting. The woman who owns the well, she puts a board over it and, and a tablecloth around it, and she puts some, some seeds down and flowers and stuff. It looks like a table in the backyard. And so when Absalom's men come, they ask her, have you seen these two guys? And she said, oh yeah, they've gone over the water, she says. Ha <laughs> ha. They were thinking stream. She was thinking the well. But off they go looking for these two guys. And the two fellows get away and they get to David and they warn David in the nick of time. It's a great story. Great story. But why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible to remind us that God is in control of the situation. It was a small thing. It's an ordinary thing. It was just a kind of spy thing, you know, and a, and it's, you know, it would make a great little snippet of a drama in a movie sometime. But, but God is in control. God has determined that he will save his kingdom and his king. Not only that, God has determined that he will punish the wicked. In verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went on home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel, who betrayed David, is a type of Judas who betrayed David's greater son. And their ends are the same. Ahithophel is an enemy of David, the Lord's chosen king, which means he was an enemy of God. He had lifted up his hand against the Lord's anointed. And when he sees that his advice is not being taken, he sees the outcome. He sees this may lead to David regaining the throne, in which case I'll be done for. He sees the writing on the wall. He's been a great statesman. He's been an even greater traitor. And now he comes to the end. And you notice that he is in full control of his estate. Puts everything in order. But in spite of being so in control that he can get himself everything in order before he does the business of hanging himself, you notice there is no move. He cannot bring himself to humble himself before Yahweh and find eternal life. He's buried with dignity in his father's tomb, but without faith, without eternal life. He's a type of Judas whose fate is the greatest tragedy in the Bible. And why is that in the Bible? That's in the Bible to tell you that in the end, all the enemies of God's Christ will be confounded. All the enemies of God's Christ will be confounded. When David wrote that second psalm, you remember how he finishes the second psalm? Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. That's the title of the king. Kiss the son lest to be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let this note of warning be sounded to all those who would stir up the hatred of the world against God's Christ and against God's church. Let this note of warning be sounded against those who would assault the people of God. That no force 
that is raised against her will ultimately succeed. That no power, no power of hell, no scheme of man, nothing can destroy the church of God. Nothing can dethrone the Christ of God. His kingdom stands and rules forever till all the nations own his sway. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you restrain the power of evil men in the world, that though they seem to get their moment in the sun, their time under the, the headlights of public opinion, their praise lauded in the media, they come, they do their stuff, they go, and they're gone for good. But your kingdom stands. Your Christ reigns, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Father, we pray that you would hasten the day when Jesus comes in power to reign. In his strong name we pray. Amen.